Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I have the privilege of reading the scripture this morning. The passage is found in the chapter 15th chapter of Luke, verses 11 through to 32. And it's entitled, The Parable of the Lost Son. So Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, "Uh, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So we called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Neil, for reading that. For those of you that know me, you know how difficult it was. Uh, You know how much of a a Disney fan I am, how difficult it was for me to not just hold Sam up in front of you. Um, For those of you that don't know me. My name is Dave, and uh, I have the joy of being one of the pastors here, and I get to serve 
uh, as a teaching pastor here and overseeing our congregation in Bolton as well. Uh, really glad that you're with us this morning. We're continuing on in our series called Being Human. And uh, really what we're doing throughout this, ser- this series, VJ and I, is we're talking through, okay, how did God create us? How did God make us? How did that all get broken? And then what has Jesus done and what is he doing to actually restore that and put us all back together? And so uh, if you were with us last week, you'll know that uh, VJ was talking about sexuality and he finished the, the message with a time of Q&A or Q&R rather, question and response. And we're going to do the same thing today. So there should be a number coming up on the screen. If you want to take that down uh, towards the end, we will have a time uh, for some question and response. You can text in your questions anytime you want throughout the message. Um, so if anything pops in your head, go ahead and do that. And then they're going to go towards Tony and he'll be Uh, working out how we go about that, okay? So, all right. Are you familiar with something called Pink Day? You put up your hand if you're familiar with something called Pink Day. Okay, you might know it as the International Day of Pink. Okay, good. Some people put their hand. Okay, good. Well, for those of you that don't know, which seems to be the majority, we'll uh, look at a quote from their website. Essentially, this is, the Day of Pink is the International Day against bullying, discrimination, homophobia, transphobia, and transmisogyny across the world. And the idea behind this organization was actually started out of Nova Scotia. Two students saw another classmate being bullied because he was wearing pink. And so what they did is they convinced the entire school to come to school the next day wearing pink to, in a sense, protest and advocate and say, no, no, we do not stand for bullying. We do not stand for discrimination of any type. And so my wife is a teacher, and so we've heard about Pink Day. We've talked about Pink Day before, but this year was different in that we received an email from our son's teacher in junior kindergarten saying that his class and his school would be participating in this day. Now we had an actual real decision to make. Was our kid going to wear pink? Was the question we started to ask. And, and we have a bit of an understanding of what's going on in terms of a social, uh, in, terms of it, uh, in terms of the social sense of things, but we also have some other thoughts. And so we began to talk about this and pray about this, and we came to this decision that we are people, our family is going to, we are going to be people who are for people, which means we have to be against bullying. We have to be against discrimination. And so as we talked this through, we said, yeah, if our children are going to learn what it means to be, to be loving, if they're going to learn to be kind, if they're going to learn to be accepting of a variety of different people living in the greater Toronto area, there's no shortness of diversity, which is a beautiful thing. If our kids are going to learn this, then it's going to start with wearing a pink shirt to school. Now, whether or not you had to have this conversation in your own family, whether or not you've thought through these things before, I assume that in the room there are a variety of different responses to even the decision we made or how to go about this type of thing in particular. Do we wear a pink shirt? Do, do we participate in days of diversity like this, whether it's pink day or whether it's something else? And so, <clears throat> excuse me, my assumption is that in the room there's a couple of people, or there, not a couple of people, there's a couple of ways we can respond to this. One way I think that we respond is that there's a celebration. Of course, all diversity, anything goes. Isn't, isn't it truly to be human, to present yourself the way you want to present yourself? However you feel, whoever you say you are, you can present. Of course, let's celebrate this. But then there's this other group of people who maybe go quickly to opposition and they say, no, 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 I don't want any of this, especially when it comes to the LGBT plus community. This is uh, maybe a political thing. I don't want anything that deters from maybe a traditional view of sexuality. I don't want that being pushed on my kids. I don't want that being pushed on me. And what happens, we know this, is that those who celebrate and those who oppose are pitted against each other and become enemies with one another, right? But there's this third category and I I wonder if the majority of us fit into this category and it's this, that we're actually confused by it. We're actually not entirely sure how to respond to days like this or to events like this or anything of that sort because 
part of the tension is, well, of course I'm against bullying, of course I'm against discrimination, but, but if I'm against something, does that automatically mean I have to be affirming of everything else that's going on? And, and what that does is that conjures up within us confusion because we don't always know everything that we're saying we stand for. And so I would say that this is an important thing for us to consider and that we have to increase our understanding of what are we even talking about when we talk about the LGBT community and one of the reasons we need to do that, especially within the church, is because for a very long time, we have been seen as oppressors. We have been seen as the opposition. And, and oftentimes, we haven't stopped to think about what we actually believe or how we'd actually process this. And what my biggest concern is that when we have this conversation, if we're having the conversation, is that we tend to view the LGBT, uh, LGBT plus community or the people within it as, as, as it's an issue. It's, it's this, it's, oh, it's like these people, are, and we kind of throw up our arms and we say, I don't even know what to do. And it's, it becomes an issue, but we forget that these are people made in the image of God, people that God loves, people that are like us. And so when we make it into an issue, when we try to categorize it, when we try to just have, you know, an agenda that deals with it, we're actually completely missing the mark. And you know why this is so important, particularly for our congregation and the congregation in Bolton? Because 80 of you, more than 80 of you actually filled out a survey and in this survey, we discovered that 85% of the people who filled out this survey know somebody who's LGBT+. 51% have LGBT friends, and 31% have LGBT family members. So what that means is it's no longer a hypothetical situation where we may one day, may or may not, maybe I can avoid or not. No, what we've been told is that very much there's a lot of interaction happening with members of this community. Beyond that, as we think about gender, 65% said that gender is not something you can change, where 12% said gender is something you can change. And the most interesting statistic on this list is that 23%, almost a quarter of all who filled out the, 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 the survey, are unsure what to think, were undecided about it. And so that's an important thing, again, because this is not a hypothetical situation. These are real people. This is a real thing. We've got to understand where do we stand on this? How do we interact with a variety of people? Now, I think something that might be helpful for us, I hope it will be, is just simply defining this acronym before us, LGBT+. Okay, I think this, will, will this be helpful? I hope if we just spend a moment here. Okay, so LGBT+, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and then the plus refers to about 10 or so other uh, identifiers of orientation or sexual identity. And so what is important about this acronym is that it does two things. First of all, it, it's about um, orientation and identity. Okay, those are two different things. An identity is who do I say I am? And an orientation is how do I orientate myself or, 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 or interact with other people? That's the orientation. So one way that's being taught in some of the public school um, uh, sex ed curriculums is that gender, get this, gender is who you go to bed as, where orientation is who you go to bed with or want to go to bed with. I actually think that's very helpful, right? Gender is who I am. If I was all by myself, in my home, in my bed, my gender, as I identify, that's who I am. But the way I orientate myself towards other people when it comes to a sexual relationship or otherwise, well, that, that has to do with my orientation. So that's, in particular, a very nuanced distinction that we need to make because what it does is it just helps frame the way we've gone about this discussion in the first place. Last week, Vijay talked about um, sexuality and how God created sexuality and uh, sex and, and sexuality and how it's in its particular context. So I'm not going to be able to go into that in its fullness today. You might, uh, it would be great if you went back and listened to that if you weren't uh, here. But, but today I want to talk just for a minute about this idea of transgenderism, which is an identity. This is what somebody is saying. This is who I am. So basically, what transgenderism is, is it's a per it refers to a person who does not identify 
with their biological sex. Okay, so this might be a person who has male genitalia and reproductive organs, but identifies as a woman, or a person who has female reproductive organs and, and genitalia, but identifies as, as a man. Okay, that's where the trans comes in. There's this switch. That's what it's kind of referring to, right? This crossover idea. And so this is absolutely complex. And so there's uh, uh, so, only so much that we can say. But one thing that's been said um, from a more clinical bit of a standpoint that I think is helpful is this idea of gender dysphoria. And I think this is very helpful because what this dysphoria word refers to is it's an intense discomfort with who I am. And don't trivialize that. There's so much more to it than say, well, what do you mean? You're, I'm un you're uncomfortable. Well, fix yourself. No, it's not as simple as that. It's a deep sense of uneasiness, a deep sense of um, dissatisfaction. I do not feel like I have been put together the way I think I feel I should have been put together. And it gets to this depth of place where in some instances this has become an actual uh, clinical diagnosis. Now, that being said, we have to be very careful with this phrase because not everyone who identifies as transgender would say that they experience gender dysphoria. And I'll give you some resources later on, perhaps if you ask during the Q&R time, that can help you dig into this a little bit more. But why all of this matters is because if these are people that we know, perhaps you are experiencing this yourself, you're identifying as transgender, this is so relevant in terms of what's happening in culture, but it's not just something that came out, out of nowhere. We actually can go to the very beginning of creation, see how God created, and make sense of what was said there in terms of how do we interact today. So that's what we've been trying to do. Vijay and I have been going back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. So when we get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, a verse we've talked about a number of times, it says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Let me read it one more time. Okay, what, follow along with me. So God created mankind, uh, humankind, okay? At the time of this being, humankind is a better interpretation of that word mankind already, all right? Trudeau would say people kind. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And really for the past four or five weeks, we've been trying to unpack this idea. And there's a number of different storylines that come out of the creation narrative, Genesis chapter one, two, and three. And all throughout scripture, it has various implications for how we understand God, for our understanding of how God relates to us, how we understand one another. But what we draw out today for the sake of our discussion is that male and female are created biologically different as two distinct sexes. That's what we have at, in the creation narrative from the beginning. Male and female, he created them. Two distinct sexes. And this is not a biological accident. God in his intentionality, in his creation, decided, made a decision that some would be male and some would be female. This is how it was created, okay? Which means we have a binary system. You are male or you are female. This is what we're talking about here. Now, furthermore, what's interesting about this distinction of the two is that even though they're identified separately, male and female, they can identify separately as these two things. This creation in terms of uh, gender and biological uh, construction um, were created in such a way that they could interact with one another for what? For the sake of reproduction. Okay, so now Vijay was talking about sex last week. And, and so we do know from uh, lots of scripture actually that sex was, yes, created for procreation, but it's also created for recreation. That sounds like a weird thing to say when my parents and in-laws are in the room, but I was going to roll with it. Um, so the unique biology in the, in the created order, in this binary system, were made in such a way that, yes, they're distinct, but they can 
be brought together for the sake of reproduction, which actually means that in the creation narrative, in the order of creation, uh, um, reproduction was the primary connection there. The recreation piece came second. And what we've done with a sexualized culture is we've gone straight to the recreation part. We've gone straight to the fun of it. I'll do what I want with whomever I want. But in the created order, there's a binary system, male and female, for the sake that they would interact for the sake of reproduction. However, this has been broken. Very much this has been broken. Because we, we, we believe that anything that kind of walks away from this created order is not functioning in the way that it was meant to function according to God's creation. But it's not just sexuality and gender that was affected by this. So, so in the creation story, as it continues towards chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see that everything was good. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're, they're living. They're working. They're doing what God had commanded them to do. But then they made a decision. God had given them parameters, had given them boundaries, had said, if you live within, this, within these boundaries of my law, of my word, if you trust me more than you trust yourself, then you will be able to flourish. Then humanity will be able to procreate, will be able to multiply, you will be able to flourish. But anything that moves away from that will lead to something else. And that's actually what happened. Adam and Eve made a decision in the garden that they were going to trust themselves more than trust God. Now, God happens to be the creator of everything, which means he's also the originator of truth. So a decision to walk away from God is a decision to walk away from truth or to understand it in a more modern way. If we think of one of the most prevalent and influential philosophers of our day, Oprah Winfrey, the choice to walk away from the truth that God has established is to begin living according to our own truth. And so Adam and Eve, in their decision to live according to their own truth, actually did something that broke all of humanity. So everything, all of creation, creation begins to break and begins to decay. Death and sickness enter into the world. And there's a brokenness. There's a death. There's a separation from God that takes place. Relationships. And over the past weeks, we've talked about uh, manhood and womanhood and just the broken relationship that exists there. This idea of um, the, the, the oppression that women have faced being the oldest injustice in the world. These ideas, everything was broken and began to experience death. And so we believe that we have actually inherited that as being a part of the lineage of Adam and Eve in a spiritual sense. We've actually inherited that death for ourselves. We've inherited that brokenness for ourselves, meaning everything in our lives is not necessarily functioning the way that it should function. Maybe you're not convinced that Adam and Eve, that we inherited it from them or anything like that. If we just stop and diagnose, you know, this morning from the time you woke up, or maybe go back through your day yesterday. And if you have any familiarity with how God may or may not want humans to flourish, I bet we can come up with at least one or two ways where we have deterred from that. Maybe you're not so convinced about the whole God thing. If we at least uh, hold on to this idea of living out your own truth, perhaps you've been in, an, in a conversation where somebody told you one thing and you said, I don't know about that. I'm going to do this anyways. So we do this absolutely all the time. And just like everything else, this has also had a direct implication on gender and sexuality. Now, I really want you to be able to hear in my tone how complex this is. I want you to be able to hear that I feel um, largely uh, under-equipped to handle this conversation at large. Uh, if you are trans or a member of the LGBT community in general, I want you to know that this is not a message where I'm trying to pick on anybody, because what I actually believe is that this is, an th this is something that, um, that affects all of creation that affects all of humanity. And I almost want to, I'm going to say this, in a sense, every single one of us experiences this, this sense of dysphoria. So it may be in relation to your gender where you don't feel at home or at ease with who you are, 
But maybe it's not about gender. Maybe it's about something else where you say, I don't know. Like I never felt like quite right in my family, like always a little bit of a black sheep. Or, or where I grew up, I just felt like I didn't actually fit in there. Or maybe it's something else. There's always been pressure on me to be one thing, but, but I really sense I'm another thing, right? Maybe it has to do with your job and you grew up in a family where everyone's a doctor or everyone's a teacher and you felt this pressure. Everyone's a something else. And to not join into the family business, you feel like you're just, I don't feel right in this whole, right? In various ways, we feel this sense of dysphoria. And the greatest, most helpful definition of dysphoria that I found is this sense of not feeling at home which makes complete sense given the creation story. The moment Adam and Eve chose to trust themselves more than they chose to trust God, they walked away from home. They walked away from what was right, from the way that humanity was set up to flourish. Now, some of us experience this dysphoria, this confusion, this sense of um, not-at-homeness. We experience this as the result of the choices we've made. So we chose, I'm going to do this, I'm going to live this way, and sometimes we have, to, we have to deal with the repercussions of our decisions, right? But others would say, no, this isn't a choice I made. I just have always felt this way. The same thing goes. Research, research shows the same thing goes for those who are experiencing gender dysphoria or identifying as transgenderism. Some of them would say, this is something I absolutely chose. I embraced this. I wanted to enter into this process. But more of the research says that those that are experiencing this don't even know how to function or how to handle all this. It's so extreme. It's so intense. And my thinking on this is that if we are the ones, followers of Jesus, we're the ones who claim to have uh, an understanding of who God is, how he relates to humanity, this understanding of being created in his image, but how all that got broken when we, dis- when we, when we, when we sinned against him. Um, you think that our understanding, of, we would, that we would understand more than anybody how difficult it is to be human right? How hard it is to live out our lives every day. And and understanding that you think that that would make us a refuge to the trans community or a refuge to the LGBT plus community. But actually, there's been a complete misunderstanding of this where for some reason, we've been pitted again as those enemies, the ones who are in when there are some who are out. And all of this should be begging the question by this point, what does Jesus have to say about all this? What are Jesus's words to dysphoric people? to those who are experiencing this intense experience of not-at-homeness, uneasiness, dissatisfaction. I don't think this is how I was made, but maybe it is, and we're just lost within that. And to find our answer, we go to the passage that Neil read for us earlier, Luke chapter 15. Perhaps this is a familiar story, the parable of the lost things. Is this familiar to anybody? The parable of four lost things, okay? And so it starts in verse 2 where it says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, this is a tremendous statement. The Pharisees are the the religiously elite people, the scholars. They could probably read and write. They they, They seem to have capital on the religious market. They were the ones who were closest with God. And they're looking at Jesus, and they're trying to figure him out, and they're trying to get him caught. And one of the things they're doing is they're saying, look at him, he's hanging out with sinners over there. Now, the sinners that are being referred to are the people that would have been deemed by the culture at the time to be so far gone from God, to be so far off in living their own truth that they were beyond redemption. There was nothing that could save them. And actually to associate them wasn't to be helpful or compassionate, but you actually ran the risk of infecting yourself. Okay, so in various parts of scripture, there's this idea where sinners are are put together with this idea of visiting with lepers. If you go into the presence of a leper, you're more than likely to catch leprosy. And so that was the way that they were trying to explain the way that they viewed the sinners. So Jesus is in the middle of this. He's got the attention of the religiously elite and those who who have been so uh, cut off and shut off by society, and they're all there. And what does Jesus do? Begins to teach. Begins to tell a story, a parable, a teaching. 
something that's going to have a significant, um, a significant spiritual implication for anyone who hears. And he begins by talking about sheep. This would have made, like, this would have just been landing like crazy in the culture of the day because they all had sheep or knew about sheep or were sheep, probably. They were around listening. And so he says, imagine you had 100 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. And one of them walked away. What would you do? You would leave everything. You would ensure that the 99 sheep were safe. You would put them aside. You would keep them safe in their pen. And you would go off and you would find the lost sheep. And you would get that sheep and you would bring it back. And then Jesus uh, hyperbolizes a little bit. And he says, you would throw a party, right? Well, that doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but it's very important because what, is, what he's saying is this is such a valuable thing that you would celebrate when you brought it home. And there's this celebration when something is lost gets brought home. Now, a sheep will wander off looking for water, looking for grass, but it won't always know that there's danger out there. That's the value of a shepherd, okay? So the shepherd has this ability to look out and say, no, 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 there's a lion or a bear or there's, or there's the risk of a flash flood if they're down in a trench. And so the shepherd has the ability to say, hey, sheep, you're lost. Go out and get the sheep and bring it back. The sheep doesn't know what's going on, but the shepherd plays this role, okay? And everybody would have said, oh, very good. That's a good teaching. That's, that's great uh, farming information. And then he goes on and he starts, okay, well, maybe the sheep thing didn't land. Let me talk about money. When you talk about money and everybody leans in a little bit more. Well, money is important, right? All of you should be leaning in. Money is very important. Imagine you lost 10% of all the money you had. What would you do? Probably freak out, right? And so the lady in the story, these coins actually have significant cultural um, value uh, with regards to her being a young girl. So there's value that's chalked up in that, meaning it's even more culturally valuable at the time. But if we thought about losing 10% of all, all our belongings, we would flip our house upside down. We would look everywhere. We would do anything we could to get that 10% and bring it back, right? Yes, yes, that should be a resounding yes. I would, maybe not, but I'm assuming a resounding yes. And they would have said, wow, absolutely. Now the thing about a coin, let's imagine you had 10 loonies and that's all the money you had. Maybe it is. And you lost one of those things. The thing about a loony is that it doesn't go missing on its own, right? It doesn't grow legs and walk away, as we tend to say about things that get missing, go missing around our place. Somewhere along the way, it falls into the abyss of the, the, the slot between our car or into our couch, or somewhere along the way, it gets misplaced or it gets put down or something happens. The coin is lost, but the coin does, it doesn't know that it's lost. The coin doesn't know it's a coin. It's very meta, I know, but just deal with it, okay? Just follow me on this, okay? And so they're all leaning in and they say, yes, of course when she finds it, she throws this huge party and celebrates because that coin is so valuable. So now Jesus has all their attention and what does he do? He brings it to talking about a person. And they would have all said, whoa, people. People are more important than sheep. People are more important than money, right? Right. And he starts talking about people. So he tells a story about two sons. He says there's this son He's a younger son of the two, and he goes to his father, and he says, Dad, I want my cut of, your, of the inheritance. I want whatever you were going to give me because I'm going to go live my own life. I'm going to walk away from home. Now, this would have been unbelievably offensive, and it should be unbelievably offensive now because the son wasn't due his inheritance until the time of his dad's death. So basically what he was saying is, Dad, you're dead to me. I don't want anything to do with you. Give me my cut of the money, give me my cut of the blessing, and I'm going to go live and I'm going to go figure this out my own way. Now, the crowd would have gasped at this. There may have been in the crowd some of those people that had actually done something of this sort, but there would have been these religiously elite who would have said, yeah, that's what you sinners are like. That's what you people are like. So Jesus continues the story. The son takes the money 
The father gives it to him. The son takes the money. He, he goes away and he begins to, to spend it and he squanders it. He, he, he wastes it. He spends it lavishly on all sorts of things to the point where he runs out of money. And so because he's followed his own journey of living out his own truth, he squandered all of his own money and he doesn't know what to do. So he says, oh, I'll try and fix some of my own problems myself and I'll go and get a job. And he goes and gets a job and he gets hired by a farmer who says, okay, the only job I have for you is to go take care of the pigs. And the person who takes care of the pigs lives with the pigs and eats with the pigs. And you're, you're basically a pig. To this, everyone in the crowd, the religiously elite, those who are viewed as the sinners, the, the, most, the most worse off, whatever, they all would have been like, yeah, you are a pig. You are a pig for choosing to squander your dad's inheritance, to say that's your father. That's where you deserve to be. Jesus had him hooked. Great preacher he was, eh? He has them hooked. While the son is doing this, he's, he's looking at what the pigs are eating, and he says, even my father's servants eat better than this. And yet here I am stuck eating this food. It says this in verse 17. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? But here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's beginning to come to his senses. He's beginning to um, have a, a bit of a clarity of thought, which means in this story that we're hearing, when you got the sheep that got lost but didn't know it, the coin that got misplaced. Now you have a human being, and there's something different here. A human being has the, has the ability to make a decision knowingly or unknowingly, but they can make a decision and have the ability also to come to their senses and begin to think through and process what's going on in their experience. And like all of us, when we need help, we probably try to figure things out on our own first before we go and ask even anybody else, right? whether it's you know, whoever's else in the car and is lost with us before we make a phone call. And maybe we make a lot more of those detours in terms of asking other people or trying to figure it out ourselves before we go to God. A person's able to make choices, choices to leave, follow their own truth, or choices to come to their sense and say, I know I need help to understand what is going on in my life. So the story continues. The son gets up and he goes to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. All of these being symbols of blessing, symbols of value. For this son of mine was dead, but is alive again. He's lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. You see, the father knew that no matter how culturally offensive, no matter how uh, offended he may have been, that the son was valuable because it was his son. And he loved him based on that right from the beginning. And the son had worked out this whole spiel, this whole confession, this whole process, I'll go back and offer myself as a servant and all these kinds of things. And, and the son starts to say it, I've sinned against you, but it's almost as if the father interrupts him blesses him with all of these incredible things and then brings him into the table, brings him into the home and celebrates him. You, you probably noticed too that the father was watching and when the son was still a long way off, the son was paying attention. Maybe he had people out there searching for him who came running. He's coming, he's coming. And the father goes running and goes out to him and greets him with a hug. And so, three lost things. Sheep, coin, son. But if you're paying close attention, I said, this is the parable of the four lost things. Did anybody catch that? Oh, interesting. Because there's this other person who's very lost. Meanwhile, 
The older son was in the field. He came near the, when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he, has, has him, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You see, the older son, he's lost just as much as the younger son was because he hasn't grasped the father's heart. He hasn't understood the love that the father has for both of his sons. The father goes on and says, I've always loved you. You've always had everything that was mine. He continues to say that. But, but the son has this incredibly judgmental response. He says, look at all of the things in, your, in the younger son's life. Look at all of the disaster. Look at all of that. And you take him in? And what about me? He hasn't grasped the father's heart. He's got this judgmental disposition. You see, the father understood and, and demonstrated unconditional love. I love you, period. Not I love you because, I love you, period. Where the, the, the son, the older son, very much had a, a, um, a conditional love. There were a lot of caveats. There were a lot of expectations. I will love him if he repays you all the money. I will repay him if you put him in the dirtiest pit you've got on the farm, father. I'll, I'll, I'll forgive him. I'll love him if you do any of those things. And so the father shows the love, that shows love for his older brother, the father shows love to the older son by saying, you've got to see it my way. He was dead. And now he's home. Don't you see the reason to celebrate? Now, if I'm honest with you, I more often than not find myself in the position of the older brother. Where I've got conditions, I've got caveats, I've got a checklist of things, and I don't always say them out loud. Sometimes I do, actually. But I've got these things where it's like, well, how is it possible that God could bring him in? Oops, spoiler alert. That father could bring him in. <laughs> right? Obviously, this story is telling the story of God, the loving father, and how he interacts with all of his humanity. And there's a lesson in it for all of us. But I find myself having this judgmental, this judgmental love, which means maybe for us, I think this would be helpful, is to ask the question, where do you find yourself in the story? as it pertains to this idea of being human, as it pertains to this idea of, of human sexuality, where do you find yourself in the story? You can't be the father. Every story we read in all of Scripture, if we try to put ourselves in their sandals, we are never God. We are never Jesus. We're very rarely the prophet that goes in to proclaim the good news unless it's Jonah who was a chicken and ran away. Like very rarely are we the person who's viewed as being the loving, uh, the loving hero we're always the one who's, being, who's getting the love, right? Who's receiving the love or choosing to make a decision to act upon that love every single time. So where are you? Maybe you're the younger brother. Maybe you've taken things in your own hands. You've tried to live your own way. You've lived by your own truth for a long time, a short time even, but you just find yourselves always at odds and not completely knowing what to do next. And maybe part of your thinking like the younger brother in the story is saying, I don't even know if, my, if, if God loves me. I don't even know if he will accept me. So maybe, if anything, I'll try to come to him and we'll see what he says. Perhaps this is your experience in terms of your gender identity. You're identifying as transgender. Or maybe you're a part of that plus in the LGBT acronym. And so my, my, my invitation to you is, is, is come to the creator. 
You know, when Tony was praying over our family a few minutes ago, and he said that God loves Sam more than you love Sam, I know that. But when I hear it, I'm still like, yeah, really? Right? And then Tony said that, that God knows Sam more than, than, than we know Sam. I'm like, really? I've changed way more diapers than the Lord seems to have. <laughs> right? And I believe that. I really believe that God knows us better than anyone. So if you're experiencing, as the younger son did, any type of dys- dysphoria, dissatisfaction, let me take things into my own hand, let me try and survive, and you don't know what to do, the invitation is come to the Creator. Come to the Father. And what we see in the story is that He is running out to you to hug you, to bless you, to bring you into the party. Come home, he's saying. But maybe you're like the older brother, like me, sometimes. I find that if I'm either really lost like the younger son or I'm really judgmental like the older son because you can't be Jesus. can't be a coin. Maybe you're the older brother, meaning you've forgotten or you've missed or you haven't paid attention to the blessing that we've always had. How easy is it for us to forget the incredible things we've been saved out of, the incredible offenses before God that we've been saved and forgiven of? How, how, dif- how, how easily we forget and how difficult to remember those things. And this is absolutely true when it comes to the LGBT plus community in so many ways, but for the means of our conversation. What this means is we need to actually turn around We need to come in as well. The father invites the older son to come in. And I think absolutely here there's this son, older son, you make that decision to turn around from your mindset, to turn around from the way you think about your younger brother and to come in, which scripture talks about in other places as repentance. This asking for forgiveness and saying, I need to turn away from what my behavior has been and God, I can do that only by your grace and I need your help to do this because as we've sinned against other human beings, we've sinned against God. And so as we've sinned against the LGBT community, we need to repent and we need to change our behavior. And there's a couple of practical things I think we can begin to do with God's help right away. One of these things is stop dismissing it as if it's all too confusing. Because when we throw up our hands, when we roll our eyes, when we scoff as the conversation comes across the table, we are scoffing, rolling our eyes, and dismissing people made in the image of God people who are a lot like us. Yes, varying ways that we're experiencing life, but people who are, are a lot like us or just like us. We need to just remove um, homophobic and transphobic slurs from our vocabulary. I'm not going to give examples of the types of jokes and the type of things that get said, but there, I'm sure many of you know what they are, and perhaps the Spirit of God is even working and bringing them into your head like crazy right now. And you maybe even be thinking of a distinct moment or conversation you had where you know you did this. That's the Spirit of God working within you. Ask God for help. Ask Him for forgiveness in that. We need to demonstrate our genuine desire to love and accept all sorts of people into this place. I know there's a bit of a cliffhanger on the story. I'm going to get back to that in just a second. But one of the things we forget is that the love of God is so scandalous. The love of God is so unlike anything else. Grace is what becomes the key in all that because grace isn't something you walk into a store and buy off a shelf. Grace is something that is free, that is given. And we have just this difficult way of grasping that. Our, our role is not to tell anybody else how they should identify, but our, our role is to invite them into the party where they get to meet the one who made them, who helps them understand who they truly are. We invite them into the table. I know we risk a lot when we invite them into the table. 
I know we risk a lot when we invite all sorts of people into the church, but Jesus didn't seem to mind what anybody said about him. Remember, even hangs out with these people. I'd be cool if I was able to identify with Jesus like that. So we're going to go to some Q&R. I'm sure questions have been coming in. And um, let's see. But we'll try and tackle two. Um, here's one. The Bible often talks about being set apart. Um, as Christians, isn't the participation in things like the International Day of Pink, or they've got some other examples in here, or the Gay Pride Parade, uh, isn't that doing the exact opposite? What about attending a same-sex marriage? While you may support the people, the action might indicate that Christ supports that union. In other words, there's nothing wrong with uh, there's there's nothing wrong with International Day of Pain because we should stand up against bullying and fight for equality. But at the same time, does it not send a mixed message if we as Christians participate in them? It's a good, it's a good question. There's a couple of questions in there. Um, some of you might be wanting to know whether or not Jesus would wear pink sandals, and uh, I don't know. But what I do know about Jesus is that he came to earth, became incarnated, put on flesh, and lived out a human experience, which was absolutely, categorically, fundamentally different than any other god. Other gods wanted this separation, or want this separation, right? There's this idea of, or the practice of becoming a monk, which is to remove yourself from all of, of, of everybody else, so you won't be tarnished, so your reputation won't be wrecked, so you have no chance of being made impure yourself. Jesus looks at that model and says that is absolutely broken and comes in and lives among and lives with and has similar experiences to the rest of humanity. So there is something about leaning in. There's something about being in the world but not of the world if we want to look at another part of scripture, which means that I'm in the world but I'm, by the grace of God, being the primary influencer here as opposed to me being the one being influenced. That's nuanced. That's complicated. To do that all by yourself would be impossible to do it without God. Uh, definitely 100% impossible, but it needs to be lived out in experience. So the examples of um, attending, a, um, what were the examples of same-sex wedding, for example? Um, I haven't been invited to one yet, so I don't know what that means. It's sometimes how I think about that. Does that mean maybe I don't have a diverse enough group of friends? I'm not sure. Does that mean I know people? I do know uh, people who have been married, same-sex people who have been married, and I didn't get invited, and I don't know what that always means either. So what I'm getting at here is that I think there's an element that this is a deeply personal decision that needs to be processed and thought through within the context of your relationship to the people who are getting married, who are, ex are going to go through the same-sex union. Actually, we're going to talk about marriage in a couple weeks, so I'll come back to that a little bit. But what I'm trying to pull away from is this idea of I just want a yes or no answer, what do I do? Can I go or can I not go? My answer to that is that's a deeply personal thing that needs to be prayed through, needs to be considered. And I know that might seem a little too gray, but that's where I'm going to land. Okay, last question. What response would you, would you suggest to someone living an LGBT lifestyle who doesn't, complain to, who doesn't claim to identify with feeling lost, who says that living their own truth, finding their identity as an LGBT person, feels like it truly is their home? Yeah, it's a great question. Such a good missional, practical question. So one of the ways I've begun to think about the LGBT community in terms of relationship to uh, the, the larger church, the larger church, okay, Christians everywhere, is I think that Christians, followers of Jesus, need to think of the LGBT plus community as an unreached people group. 
So what I mean by that, if we think about it in the sense of missions, right? We're part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. We go all over the world telling people about Jesus. And, and one of the things that we do when we go into these various communities, some of them in the middle of the Amazon jungle where there isn't even a common language, there isn't a common writing, those Christians that try to go there and just say, Jesus, 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 are probably going to get spears, spears thrown at them. That's a legitimate, that actually happened in our history. Okay? They got killed for that. The most effective missionaries, the most effective representatives of Jesus are ones who go there and learn and love and wear the garb, like wear the clothing, eat the food, build a relationship. And as they build that relationship, what happens is there begins to become more and more common ground where the conversations about the confusion of one way of living and another way of living begin to make sense. And any missionary who's gone anywhere in the world to talk about this idea of westernizing and, you know, they'll be okay if they become more like us over here in North America isn't actually a missionary. Uh, they're messing the whole thing up. Because the thing about Jesus, again, from the first question is he comes into the world. And when people looked at him and he began to preach, people thought he was the crazy one, right? But as he built relationship with them, as he, as he loved them, as he dined with them, there became this process of them seeing, whoa, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the only place I get life. So again, it's not a simple answer. It's a relational answer in that there's work to be done. A few concluding thoughts before the band leads us. A welcomed person welcomes people. A loved person loves people. Again, this story leaves us with a bit of a cliffhanger, right? The son, the younger son gets brought in seemingly scot-free like seemingly just completely off the hook for anything that he's done. I think Jesus does this on purpose in his teaching. What he's doing there, I think, is saying, well, there's two ways that you'll respond to this. You'll be brought in. You'll experiencing, experience this uh, scandalous, overwhelming sense of grace and love and acceptance. But, but I would wonder, Jesus was making this story up, right? So it's not a historical thing necessarily that these events really played out, but Jesus is using historical ideas to make a point. I would imagine that at some point in time, the father would say, so son, about that whole taking my inheritance and saying I was dead thing. Like, we need to have a conversation about that. But the thing about the younger son is he went in and he was able to have that conversation because the second part of the cliffhanger is that the older son is left outside thinking about whether or not he's going to go in. And again, that maybe lays as the challenge to most of us. He wasn't able to feel welcomed at his father's party because he didn't understand the love of God at all. He wasn't able to, able to experience the love of the father because he thought he was close with the father, but apparently he knew nothing about the father's heart or the father's love for others. And so here's how this thing wraps up. If you're the younger brother, you're invited in. If you're the older brother, you're invited in. And together, all of us, as confusing and diverse as we may be, get to dine at the table with the one who created us, the one who knows us, the one who loves us, and the one who is working endlessly to put us back together, to function like we were meant to be from the very beginning. I think that's what being human is about. Jesus, just have an overwhelming sense of your love. You're so good to us. Wherever we find ourselves in this story, we're lost. And to know that you came here to find us. You came here to collect us. We couldn't see the danger. We couldn't see the, the predators. We couldn't see the risk involved with living how we wanted to live. But you came here not worried about your own reputation to be holiness in our presence that we would have a picture of. That's what I'm looking for. Jesus, you are the truest human. You're the one who functions the way that all of us were meant to before it was all broken. 
And so we look to you, Jesus, and we say, I'm not like you, but will you make me like you, please? And you say, yes, come to the table. And by your love and your grace and your transformative power, we get to experience something that no one else in the world can offer. Everyone tries to offer this, but they don't. They can't. Because until we have a good understanding of who you are as the, the only way, the only life, the only truth, we're just going to continue living on a life of confusion and dysphoria. God, my prayer for everyone in this room, perhaps there are those who are trans, members of the LGBT plus community. I'm so thankful, God, that they're here. Pray that they would know that you are present, that you love them, that you've created them. And I pray, God, that there would be just a divine interaction and encounter. For those of us who do know you, God, we ask that you put your finger on the places of our life where we've forgotten how much you love us. How sometimes we seem to wander outside on the porch and don't really like all the people that are coming in. Just help us to be in at the table, serving and receiving and being a part of that love. Thank you for this image of in and of it being in the house and that we have this invitation to come in and sit there with you. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand with us.